a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 79 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.StarWarsReport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes and right on our own Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman. And with me, like a stubborn Jedi who just won't lie down and die after the commencement of Order 66, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everyone. We are back, uh, recording a new episode now, post-wedding time, finally. Post-hitched. Yeah, got hitched up. I, I, I saw some of your uh, wedding photos. Very, very well done, sir. Very well done. Thank you. We're going to get uh, more of those up there onto uh, to my Facebook page, so if you're not uh, out there already on there, uh, feel free to, to, to add me and such. I'm always fine with listeners hopping on there. But yeah, basically... Uh, we did a very Star Wars-themed sort of wedding without going overboard, I think. Um, it was fairly small. We had just kind of a few people from each side of the family um, uh, in this very small... It's like an outdoor garden wedding type of thing. And uh, we had this this long stretch where she would have to walk, not just walk down the aisle, but she and everybody else would be walking down a little bit of a slope in this yard, uh, this garden area, uh, to get down to where everything was, and there's these bows and everything. We did a, a, a theme wedding using my favorite color, which is purple, which is also my college because It was purple and silver with a lot of white with it. So there's these purple and silver and white uh, bows and everything and all this lace that's covering up part of where she starts out. So the way it wound up playing out was that uh, the groomsmen, which were my brother-in-law, John, my two nephews, Ethan and Aiden, and then... Uh, uh, her brother Jamie, they come down. They're walking down with the you know the bridesmaids, a flower girl, and all that kind of stuff. They walk down and take their places to just regular wedding music, Canon ND uh, on guitar. And then she starts walking down, and I think I've mentioned this before, and I think we played it before. Um, she walks down to a split of or a splicing together of the "Here Comes the Bride" type of wedding march, and it gets right to the point where she's coming around the corner where everybody can see her now instead of just catching glimpses and moves into the Imperial March and continues to walk her way down there. And for those who got it, there was a lot of, you know, laughing and amusement and stuff like that. Uh, so it went over well. We <laughs> did uh, the wedding itself, the wedding ceremony itself, with uh, it was actually a friend of hers who was the officiant for it. And, um, you know, nothing really Star Warsy or geeky within that part. Uh, we get up to the point where we give the rings, so we give the rings, and I would point out that mine on the inside is inscribed, uh, the force, let's see, what is it? May the force be with us is in it. Um, we did a sand ceremony instead of the unity candle thing where you each light a candle and then light the one in the center. Instead, we did a thing where you basically have two different colors of sand, and the idea is that as they mix together and cannot be separated, so can you not be separated, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
So as, as the, the efficient's reading whatever he's reading, you pour the sand in at the same time, so it makes kind of like a swirl. It almost looks like a, a swirl of chocolate and vanilla, except of different colors, um, that's like frozen in time. Yeah, but before that's we a did good that, ceremony. Yeah, it's very, it's very cool, very symbolic. Um, before we did anything with it, though, he kind of explained to the audience what was going on. But we had um, a little vial of sand from Tunisia, from where they filmed A New Hope's Tatooine stuff, and poured that in as the bottom layer. I want to say I got it from pre-ordering the the Force Among Us DVD way, 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 way back when. Uh, Chris Mock's team and them. So uh, we do the sand ceremony. We go back, and uh, he then pronounces us, interestingly enough, husband and geek, you know, which is kind of the theme we were going with. Um, <laughs> And of course, the, I forget what they call it, uh, but the music that was, the, I forget what the name of the, it's like postlude or recessional or whatever. Um, but as they announce us and we walk up to where we're going to go to the receiving line type area to see everybody on the way out, we play the Yavin celebration theme, which made sense. Once we get up there and then the bridesmaids and the groomsmen and all them wind up heading out, they, uh, they walked out to Across the Stars from episode two and uh i think that pretty much wrapped up the the star warsiness of it all and then we you know we moved on to the reception and that sort of thing so we had our little geekdom moments built in there here and there you won't see it like if you look at any of the pictures you would never know that there was a star wars theme to it because we didn't do anything overtly you know like we didn't have people holding lightsabers over our heads or anything like that but we managed to work in our little bits and pieces and then our theme for the reception was just to find songs that we liked and find acoustic versions of them. And it was just kind of a, a constant acoustic flow of everything from Stone Temple Pilots to the first big Alanis Morissette album. Just, you know, just whatever we could find. Although we, we didn't reach the very end. If we had reached the very end of it, they would have wound up hearing Ice Ice Baby because you can't have a wedding reception for people who are um, from my time period without having at least one Ice Ice Baby in there. That's anyway. right. <laughs> so, so you were the husband and she was the geek. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's cute because, like, in a way, the geek found her uber geek. Uh, yeah, that's, pretty, that's much. Pretty. <laughs> pretty much. That's pretty awesome, much. We're waiting on the honeymoon because just she's been out of work for a while and just money's a little tight. So we're waiting. We're going to save up the money for um, on our first anniversary going and doing something. We don't know what we're going to do yet. Some We might do Disney. Who knows? Nice. Um, but our thing was that the day after, you know, we had still had family in town, so we got a chance to see a lot of members of my family that I would normally have to go up to Indiana to see. Um, before we did anything with them late in the night after the wedding, we did go and indulge our geekdom and went to see Star Trek Into Darkness. Nice. So, you know, we got our geekdom in there. We're going to wind up seeing uh, something. We're going to see Man of Steel here in the near future, kind of using our summer break as a chance to just get out more. And, and if we can't gotcha. do a regular honeymoon, do some stuff. So we got our geekdom. It was nice. And now there is a... Uh, Mrs. Jody Butler out there, which is cool. So yeah, it's it's been a a good but rather frantic time since the last time we recorded. It's good to actually be back in the chair, back with the mic, and you know, ready to back get in back into some EU stuff. Exactly. Well, you know, I, I will say because we had our own little wedding was a little unorthodox. You know, we went down to the courthouse due to pregnancy and stuff, and and. Bills. It was like, okay, uh, they're going to nail you to the cross unless we're hitched now. My wife wanted to wait, you know, because she was had the belly and all that. And the plan got thrown off because at the last minute she decided maybe she didn't want to walk down the aisle pregnant. 
And then, of course, we ended up doing that anyway. But we were going to do something similar with that. You know, in a year or five years, we're going to redo our vows. And it came and we just never got ready for it. So if you're going to put off your honeymoon, I highly suggest, you know, you, you figure a date out, get a plan and just like, you know, whether it be one year or five years out, have your plan and stick with it. Because we didn't we wanted to do a five year redo our vows and never really got around to it. Now it's like, well, in 10 years, well, that just went. And we're like, well, maybe in 15 years we'll do it. Uh, who cares? Yeah, just avoid doing the Lucas kind, which would be saying, uh, we're going to do it in one year. No, I actually mean three. No, I mean five. No, I meant two. No, I always meant six or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Now, speaking of uh, chronological issues, I guess, in a sense, number issues, um, we're talking this time about a book series that drove me nuts prior to the last book, at least, because of continuity issues and chron chronological issues. So, Mark, what are we talking about this time? Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we explore Star Wars The Last Jedi. Consider this your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go. Now, before we jump into this heavy spoiler area, we'd like to offer you guys one of our spoiler-free moments here, the quick spoiler-free rundown. With that said, here you go. Yeah, this one is an odd one, I guess you could say. It's a lot like the way that they presented Order 66, where Order 66 wasn't really Republic Commando, Order 66, though everybody kind of knew that it was. This is basically Coruscant Knights Book 4. We had the first book by Michael Reeves, second book by Michael Reeves, then we get into the third book, where we realize that it's Reeves and Maya Catherine Bonhoff working together, though he's getting most of the credit for it. And then we have The Last Jedi, which actually credits both of them together, just like Shadow Games did. And it's continuing the tale of Jax Pavan. It's about a year, uh, a year plus after the events of Revenge of the Sith. They refer to the events on Bandamere back in Dark Times Blue Harvest, uh, which was three months after Revenge of the Sith, as being last year. Um, it's been months since book three, of course, on Knight's Patterns of Force. So it was basically kind of pinned down to either being in 18 BBY or uh, maybe very early 17 BBY. They also refer to the events of Infinity's End as being 13 years earlier, so it gives us a chance to kind of pin it down uh, to 18 BBY. But it's been at least a year. Vader is slowly becoming the face of the Empire, something to be feared. Of course, Jax knows, as we learned in previous books, that Vader is Anakin, so there's that aspect to it. Jax is still carrying around the items that he got uh, from kind of a combination of his father through I-5 and from Anakin himself. He's still carrying around that Sith holocron. He's still carrying around that Pyronium, though we have no idea what it's supposed to do until it finally gets explained in this book. And there is still the issue of where he's managed to also get involved with the Whiplash movement, the uh, sort of anti-imperial resistance movement on Coruscant, and he's made some, I don't want to say enemies, but he's certainly rubbed Black Sun the wrong way. And this is the era in which Shizor is rising, partly due to the, the void of leadership after what happened in the Clone Wars cartoon series with so many people from Black Sun being killed. So we're in an interesting 
era for this story to take place. Hopefully it doesn't get run over by rebels and just tossed out the window. But we have a lot of different pieces in play here, and that's what this book feels like to me. It feels like there's all these little pieces that were out there in the previous books that were sort of left dangling, and we could have just said, okay, we're done, no big deal. We don't really need to see where this goes. Whiplash, it eventually becomes part of the rebellion, presumably Jax, whatever, he kind of fades into the background. We didn't need a lot of detail to how this all wraps up. But we get it. And it winds up being a book that's somewhat overly long, but which manages to weave in what's going on and what's the fate of Whiplash, what's the fate of Jax, what about these things Jax has been carrying around, what about him confronting Vader, is he ever going to be able to do that, what about his companions, and so on and so on. Um, it feels a little heavy uh, in, in terms of just the, the bulk of it. It probably could have been told a little bit shorter. It does have some dragging bits at times, but overall... I would say that it's a fairly solid read, not one of the absolute best in recent memory, because we got some really kick-butt novels in recent memory, but certainly it is a solid book, and it's not one that I would recommend not reading. Um, it's simply one that if I were to be recommending recent books, it's probably in that second tier rather than the top tier, just because there's so much good stuff out there right now. Yeah, I, I have to agree with your assessment there. Solid is a good placement for it. Uh, the middle part of the book, Drug, that was for me the hardest part was once I got into the middle, there was a lot of back, forth, back, forth, back, forth. Like, okay, how many times are we going to go to this planet? How many times are we going to go to this station? Are you just going to do it? Are you going to commit to it yet? And I, I get that that's where the story was kind of progressing. It was more of an internal story of, of what was going on in Jack's, his struggle with right and wrong, the placement of him. I think part of my issue with that is I've always kind of come from the covers and assumed Jax was older than he always is. Like they play up that he's a Padawan, but yet he he's never really described much as a Padawan. He always comes across more like a a regular adult. I I mean Vader is treated more like an adult and like a Jedi than Jax's character has ever been treated. He's always treated like a Padawan who doesn't know what he's doing, and yet he's the same age as Anakin. So it's kind of like that always threw me off. But by the time we get to Dathomir at the end of the book, oh, man, it got so good. I really enjoyed it. And that was how the beginning was, too. It had a very great beginning, very great ending. The middle was way stretched out, way stretched out to the point where I really felt like it did not need to be that stretched out. Made me actually question the fact that you have Michael and Maya both writing the book. I mean, I would really like to know where or how they work together. I mean, did one handle a chapter at a time? Did one come back and, and proofread and fix the other chapters? I, there are times where I felt like I was reading two stories, and then there were other times where, like, like I said, the beginning and the end, they were really captured my attention. They, they drew me in. And other parts of the book just did not do that. And so I, I really start to question, was that one author's style that really appealed to me versus the other ones? Or was that just a spot in the creative process where things just got a little more drug out? I mean, again... For Jax's character, I can understand now why they did him doing his hip, his hip flopping, hip hopping, whatever he was doing, the hemming and hawing. Uh, you know, it, it makes sense because the Jedi are conflicted. Their order has been wiped out. They are wanting to seek revenge. I mean, you think of Purge and all the Jedi wanting to take Vader out. He keeps going back and forth with that. So, you know, there was that annoyance factor, but I recognize that that, that was critical to his character because he was coming to a realization. Um, a solid book is is a definite way of putting it. I wouldn't put it out there as some of the best, but the ending of this book definitely brought back the fact that the middle was so ugh, lackluster. And let me say that this is another of these books that has a reset button. Um, by the end of the book, 
we find Jax being incredibly powerful. He is a super Jedi by the end of the book. Um, overpowered, um, with abilities that we generally don't see Jedi using that are over the top. That this guy could have turned the tide in the Galactic Civil War in no time flat just because of the sheer amount of new abilities he has acquired. And by the end of the book, they make sure that those are gone. Granted, they give story reasons behind it so it makes sense that they're gone. It's not just out of nowhere, oh, sorry, we've got to get rid of these because it's going to screw up continuity for you to have these abilities and be out there. But as soon as he gets the abilities, you know he either has to die or some kind of reset button has to be pushed. That, this, that these abilities have to be gone. It's the closest thing in recent Star Wars publishing uh, that I would compare to the events on Mortis in the Clone Wars cartoon series, where the son shows Anakin the future, and he sees himself doing horrible things, becoming Vader and everything that comes after, and yet the father just comes in and it's like, here, let me touch your forehead. <laughs> All of a sudden, you forgot everything Uh We've averted whatever might have happened by you having that knowledge. It's the holy crap, but you know that the holy crap is mitigated by the fact that you know they're going to hit a reset button. There's no yeah. way they're going to let it continue. I, I, I mean, I understood where they were coming. I was bummed. I really enjoyed how he gained those powers. <laughs> well, now with that all said, brace yourselves for some major, major spoilers. With that, Nathan, why don't you uh, preface this where we're at? Well, we pick up with basically uh, the Whiplash, this anti-imperial resistance group on Coruscant, is under more scrutiny. And in order to try to keep their leader, Thaizan Yiman, uh, who is a Syrian, safe, the idea is that they need to get him the heck off of Coruscant. The plan is to get him to Dantooine, eventually. Um, but get him off of Coruscant, that way he and all the secrets that he holds will be safe. Uh, at this point, Whiplash then is left on Coruscant under sort of the command of a council. The council, though, is a little bit unbalanced because you have Tudensal kind of has the dominating voice, even though there are others, including Pol House, uh, the prefect, who is now actually a, a full member of Whiplash at this point. So they've got a guy who's within the local law enforcement kind of keeping an eye on things for them. And See, in that character, I had to go back and and do some Wikipedia stuff, because I remembered him being in the books, but I could not remember if he was good or bad, but that was just how well they did it. Like, he was introduced, and you were kind of like, what is this guy? He was always nebulous. They didn't quite say if he was good. He was definitely working for the Empire, the ISB, but they didn't go beyond that. You're like, okay, uh, I don't remember him. I, I was struggling with that a lot through the book, because of how long it was between them. I'm like, okay, I, I remember vaguely that event. I remember this person... And Tudin saw, like, he came more across, like, uh, like the Vader to, uh, to Yemen's Palpatine, like, of, of their group, you know? Well, it's funny because, remember, they said that the reason why there might not be an Imperial Commando 2 to wrap up the stories of Republic Commando and Imperial Commando was that if they had to wait a few years to assign somebody else and have somebody actually write it, you know, well, it probably just wouldn't sell. People just wouldn't be interested anymore because so many years had passed. Well, this is a yeah. book released in 2013, and the previous book in Coruscant Nights, the last time we saw Jax Pavin, was 2009. So it's been uh -huh. four years. Um, kind of puts the lie to that in, in recent books. Uh, they could sort of say that uh, Mercy Kill was the real overkill of, of Hey, Let's Wait a Long Time and See, people will still be interested. Um, but yeah, you get this, this group on Coruscant who is going to continuously 
grow more and more extreme thanks to Tudin Sal's leadership and want to take a shot at Palpatine while Palpatine is at his lakeside retreat on Coruscant. Whether it goes well or not uh, is something that you find as, as the story goes on. Um, meanwhile, Yimon, they're trying to get him off world, but they come under attack. There apparently is some type of traitor in their ranks um, or, or something is giving away their position because they wind up going to Tamparara, uh, where they meet some of the local resistance. They then leave there. They're on their way to Dantooine, and uh-oh, out of nowhere, Imperial ships led by Vader show up, attack, and we get one of the the most important scenes, and also I think the way it's described, one of the more confusing scenes of the book, of the narrative, where uh, I-5 gets blasted, so basically all that's left is his head, which will eventually get new bodies, plural, throughout as they get kind of a modular casing, which is kind of a cool concept. Um, Larenth, Tarek, uh, the, the paladin gets killed and dies in Jax's arms, and they're playing up this hole where there was sort of a, rom- a romantic attachment between the two that was growing, which was sort of played with in the previous books, but not nearly as much as to have an impact you'd expect here. You just have to figure that they grew closer and closer as time went on since the last book. Um, and it leaves Yimon captured by the Empire and Jax, Dinder, and the head of I-5 trying to figure out what to do next. Um, and it winds up then the entire rest of the book is what if Yemon has secrets that would destroy Whiplash? They have to keep the Empire from getting to them. Yeah, he's a Serene, and it seems like he has this ability to sort of like shut down part of his mind to keep those secrets from being on the surface level where the Darksiders could dig at them. But eventually they will break him. They'll figure out the idea that uh, one of the Inquisitors will figure out the idea that if you just take the two parts of his brain and separate them, then you would be able to have access to it. Granted, it would be a debilitating surgery, but they don't care. They want the information. And to do this, Jax eventually will decide to kind of go with the lesser of evils. He will at one point consider a deal with Black Sun in the person of Shizor. He will decide to use forbidden knowledge from within the Sith holocron. He'll wind up using the Pyronium, which we learn is something that holds almost a limitless amount of energy, um, and finally have to go on a mission to where he winds up facing off with Vader uh, for the first real time uh, since Patterns of Force, where we don't know what happened to Vader. He thinks Vader might have even been dead, um, where Vader had that bad trip on the Boda because, oh yeah, the Boda had gone bad over the course of decades, but yeah, not really because they screwed up the continuity. It was actually more like a matter of months. Um, it's, it's that was an interesting twist, though, because... It was like not just Jax hadn't heard of Vader, but it was like he had dropped off the galactic scene, which I found interesting because I'm like, wasn't there events going on at this place? Like, like shouldn't he be showing up somewhere? I mean, he just disappears from the whole galactic eye. It, it was interesting, though. Yeah, I doubt that's going to wind up holding. Having having recently had conversations with John Jackson Miller, as I'm reading Kenobi, the advanced review copy of Kenobi that Del Rey sent, um, and kind of seeing, you know, well, how is it that Kenobi doesn't know about Vader uh, being still alive throughout the course of Kenobi? At what point must that story take place? He had to do a lot of really painstaking research to figure out when it is that people learn about Vader, when it is that he's out there. Are there delayed broadcasts of events? Are there live broadcasts of events? Um, I have a feeling that this whole Vader dropped off the radar thing might just be that, well, you know, they were keeping it from hitting the main news vids, but someone somewhere was still finding out about it. Like, maybe... You know, somebody several planets away, if Vader was on a mission, they know about it because it was local, but on Coruscant, where the Empire's more in control, 
they hid some of the news. Maybe the events didn't go so well or something. I can't imagine them being able to say, yeah, Vader really dropped off the radar, especially with Rebels coming out and all this other stuff, assuming it's one continuity anyway. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of really cool stuff at the beginning, especially. I mean, the scene where Lorenth goes down, I mean, you know, they're pretty much going to be boarded. I I, I like the the setup of the location. Like, they're kind of like set up between two black holes. I mean, it was kind of like you're in a section of space where you're like in the corner pocket. There's no way out, and you're completely pinned, and the only way out is to go through these two black holes. And, you know, you're just like, what's going to happen? I mean, the the action got so intense and then all of a sudden the, the destroyers are on top of them and they're freaking out. And, you know, Laurent is up in the gunwell and, you know, Den's running down there and he's wondering if she's, you know, alive or dead. He hurries down towards the confluence of the transfer of the fore and aft passages. As he'd fear, the source of the smoke was the weapons battery. It was also the source of the string of what could have been either curses or prayers delivered in a husky female voice. The litany ended with that's it. Come on, come on, come on. Laurent. Den reached the spot below the battery and peered up. The retractable ladder was halfway down, but Lorenth was still up in the bay, working over a control panel that looked as if it had been imploded. Her face was crisscrossed with cuts, her bare shoulders and lakeu bleeding from numerous wounds. What are you doing? He demanded. Get out of there! Not yet. Not until I send Lord Vader one last message. She reached for the firing mechanism, or what was left of it. Peering up through the transparasteel cowl of her head, Den realized what she meant to do. The dorsal turbo laser was aimed right for the belly of Vazor's ship at point-blank range. Lorenz, no! But she was already committed. The emergency lights brightened as power surged. She fired. The backlash was so intense it swept Den off his feet and tossed him down the forward and aft passage as if he were a leaf in the wind. And I gotta love that quick uh, little serenity quote there. That was just great. But... You know, you mentioned the relationship that was building between Jackson and Lorenz. And at this point, we don't really realize that that's there. Like, you don't really, like, Jax doesn't even really figure it out until much later. Like, almost at the point, like, he's on Dathomir. And they actually ask him some questions about the, the lady he was with. And then it's like he has this, like, epiphany. Like, yeah, I, I, I did really care for her. But it, it was always there. But it's like he didn't realize it until much, much later in the book. So I think for me, like that midsection felt like there was a lot of flipping and flopping on his part because he was trying to address emotions that he did not want to even look at. I mean, he totally cut himself off from everyone by the, by the middle of the book. He's completely, you know, he's with Den and I five, but not with him. They're like, what is he doing? We don't even, I mean, what, why are we going and seeking out black sun? Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? This isn't Jack's and Den especially is like, what's going on. But the fact that even I five noticed it, you know, it, it kind of built up on it, but it wasn't until I got to the end of the book before I realized that's what was going on. I mean, after I got to the end and finished the book, I have a better appreciation for that drawn out part, but only because I know the awesomeness that we get at the end of that book. If they didn't have that though, I wouldn't have liked it. I mean, I was really having my doubts when I was getting halfway through this book. By the time you get to Dathomir though, rest assured boys and girls, it's going to get a lot better from there. And that's one of the things, I mean, I'm kind of compiling a list as, as I think about this of things to bring up about this book. And I got to tell you, one of the things that's on my list is the whole how he gets to Dathomir thing. Because it's kind of stupid. He basically, yeah, goes, yeah he's, uh, he's basically, he's meditating, he's like, I don't know where to go now. He's looked at, they basically figure out, thanks to Black Sun, 
where Yemen is being held, and it's in like this asteroid field where the prison itself is on an asteroid. It's very difficult to get to. And one of the ways they could get there is maybe they could, you know, work with Shizor and use Black Sun vehicles that supply the base sometimes and travel with them and just sneak aboard. And they'll eventually wind up using something similar when uh, Din and uh, Sasha Swipford, this uh, former uh, pod racer uh, pilot who we find it's, is also Force-sensitive, winds up being part of this rescue mission and all, um, they will try to go in, you know, pretending to be a Black Sun ship and everything like that, uh, the Raptor. But uh, when they figure out where this is and how difficult it's going to be to get there, uh, he goes and checks it out, and oh crap, there's no way to get in there. One of these things that kind of feels re repetitive. Wow, he goes there and figures out he can't do it. Isn't that exactly what Shizor just said? So now we've got to go back and talk to them again? Oh, yay. <laughs> yeah. um, but he winds up get, having like this forced meditation in which he, he, the vision or the, the information that's given to him apparently by the force is seek sisters. And that causes him to realize, oh, Dathomir, I gotta go see the witches of Dathomir. Dude, really? Seek Sisters tells you to go to Dathomir? I mean, that's nuts. You know, Seek Sisters, okay. Uh, seek out yeah, some I female Paladins. Jedi. I, I immediately thought the Paladins, you know, because Lawrence was a Paladin, so I thought we were going to go and see Grey Paladins at first, and I was like, I was in the same boat. Really? You come up with Night Sisters? Yeah. I mean, okay. Seek Paladins, Seek Jedi, uh, Seek Women, Seek whether or not... Uh, your father perhaps had other female children that you didn't know about, but seek sisters, meaning go to Dathomir and seek out the good witches? I mean, it just, it was kind of one of those, you know, jump the shark kind of moments where it's just so unbelievable that it kind of knocks you out of the book going, are you nuts? Um, but suffice to say, he winds up going to Dathomir. And yes, what's on Dathomir is actually, it's pretty cool. We get to see Ogwen Joe. Uh, who, of course, is someone we see again in Courtship of Princess Leia. We wind up seeing him and a couple of uh, the witches travel to one of the old Qua Infinity Gates, which, of course, is a reference back to the story in Republic and all. Um, and he's got this Sith holocron that is from Darth Ramage. Not Darth Ravage. Ramage. Odd name. Uh but he realizes that you can open this holocron and start learning its secrets with a sacrifice, basically, of blood. And you get the sense for a moment there that he is so misguided. He is so myopically focused on his mission, to the point of leaving Dindur and I-5 behind. To the point of being willing, at one point, to consider working with Shizor. His attachments to Yimon and to Larenth are screwing him up in terms of his ability to do what is right as opposed to doing what is expedient to get what he wants, that you think for a moment he might actually kill the witch who was with him to get blood. It's unlikely. But for a moment you're kind of questioning it, and he winds up basically getting the other witches together, and they each provide a little bit of blood, so it's not all coming from one person, which manages to open him up, uh, open it up and give him these phenomenal cosmic powers. And when I say phenomenal cosmic powers, we're talking about like the ability to understand the flow of time to possibly be able to alter your own history. Um, he winds up using it instead, instead of tinkering with time, Jason Solo style, what he decides to do is he essentially, it's almost like he can create force illusions that are very, very real, and that are almost like him himself from a different part of the time stream, 
and he's able to create false versions of himself to mislead the Imperials when he boards that Imperial space station uh, to yeah, look for dude. Yimon. It just, Those force projections were awesome. That was the best power ever. <laughs> it's, it's not these phenomenal cosmic powers, but he's not really going to use it to the most effective way. It's It either shows great restraint or lack of creativity on Jax's part. Because if he really can do that, then really you're going to use it to basically fool security cameras. I mean, I've got all this awesome power. I have so much power. I must be careful. I must stay in control. And there's all these, this whole, you know, what is he going to do with this power? He, even to the point where he has sort of a fail-safe where he makes a deal with the, the witches to make sure that when he comes back after this is over with, that they wipe his mind, his memory of any of that knowledge from Ramage's holocron. And yet we don't see him use it in any super dangerous sort of way. I mean, it's like, you know, uh, oh no, the supervillain now knows how to create their own nuclear weapon. But instead of making a nuclear weapon, they go and like construct a bow and arrow. You know, okay, yes, he's dangerous because of that knowledge, but you never get to see that danger really on display to the point where you worry about the character and what's going to happen to them or what's going to happen if they actually let loose. It, the potential of that knowledge, it feels like it's somewhat squandered. Uh, they, they play it up as something huge, but it's not used in that way. It's just another burden to place on Jax's shoulders that he has to carry until his mission's done. Well, I like the way it worked. I mean, once he realized how to unlock the, the Sith holocron and access the information, I mean, the, he absorbed it all immediately. And in his head, it started out like a black room. And then the room kind of slowly expanded with lights. And then he realized the lights were actually... Uh, holocrons and datacrons and scrolls and it was the Jedi library inside his mind that that all the knowledge took on that metaphor for him and so he's standing inside the Jedi temple inside the Jedi library and each work glows with whether it be light it would glow with a bright light or if it was dark it would have like a red dark mistiness around it some of the stuff was darker than others some of it was lighter than others because Darth Ramage was was collecting lore, not just Sith lore, but even Jedi lore. So he had stuff on healing and stuff like that. And I like the way that they shimmered with, you know, so he had kind of an idea of which things were darker than others. And when he grabbed them, they would absorb right into his body and boom, he knew the ability. And that was like, holy cow, the arsenal at his disposal. Uh, you're, you're right, though. What he applied, he didn't use as much as, as was at his fingertips. Uh, but I, I felt like that was him really trying to stick to the Jedi way as best he could. But man, the way that they worked that with with that plethora of knowledge that he absorbed, yet not absorbed. I mean, it was all in him now. And it was all at his disposal. All he had to do was do a quick meditation, go into that spot in his mind, find whatever he needed and absorb it. Uh, the thing about the time travel that was so crazy was the the, the cellophons. Uh, those, those, like, jellyfish looking uh, dudes that float in the methane tanks from the old stuff, they have the ability to kind of exist outside of time. And, you know, they, they the guy offers, there's one of them that he runs across that offers him a warning that sets everything up where you have will this, that or other, you will that, this or other. And it's very confusing talk. But as he learns through the holocron, the reason that the Sith has all this information was because they were taking these people, these cellophons and sub and basically kind of think of like the Borg, how they have the collective mind and he was severing their collective mind, kind of doing a seven of nine for the one and separating it. And that was how he was able to use his, the cellophons uh, point of view of time 
and used that point of view to understand how time worked because it was so above their perceptions. And so he used them as a gateway to understand how time worked, therefore allowing him to bypass something that he would never understand. And it worked even for Jax to a limited degree. Uh, they saw it as, you know, not just currents, but as a giant ocean and that you, you really couldn't time travel at all without screwing up everything. And that was where Jax kind of came to the force projections because he learned that you could focus smaller, not on the ocean scale, but more on the currents within and the smaller eddies. And you could influence those smaller eddies without it influencing the larger ocean. Uh, and so in that regard, that was how he started doing those force projections where he would, you know, he would set, it was kind of like a, 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 an answering machine message, you know, where beep, this is Jack Spavon. I'm going to wave my hand to this way and I'm going to do this. And the body would go through the motions, but he wouldn't be talking. He couldn't do anything where he was talking to people like that wouldn't work. They would just see the image of him and, and it doing the thing. So I kind of had like this, this envisionment of either he was like, setting that in his mind where I would make the, the image do this, or he was doing those things and then sending that projection to the, the location that he had in mind. But it was definitely an interesting point when they got to that point. But when you're talking about when he accessed that holocron, when he was looking at that Sith uh, or not the Sith, the, the, the Dathomir witch chick, I was totally thinking he was going to offer because he was already starting to do some really dark things. I'm like, where are we going to go with this? Is he going to off Garth or Gari or whatever her name was? Yeah, I, I totally thought Magash was on borrowed time at that point. I'm like, because she kind of was like asking him a whole bunch of questions about, you know, what it was to be a Jedi. She wanted to learn. So there was reason for her to be there as well. It wasn't just like he needed a guide. She actually wanted to know more about the Jedi way. And then while she was questioning him, he was questioning her, which kind of led me to, to, to have this feeling like maybe that that's where we start to see some of the tribes that mix the, the men with the ladies. Cause it seemed like he was kind of dropping some heavy hints on her there. I mean, he, he pretty much gave her a couple of epiphanies in the middle of their little time. And then you have the, the, the Qua temples and stuff, the, uh, the Stargate and all that, and the way that worked out. There was a lot of really cool moments once we got to Dathomir on. The Mandalore stuff, I don't know, it didn't really jump out at me. I, I think for me, the, the mid part of the book, the best stuff going on there was all I-5. Uh, the modifications and stuff like that. I mean, like you said, he was ahead, but then he comes, uh, and when they go to uh, Tapara, they uh, they run across some of the rangers, and they come across, uh, like there's like two times they come across these droid shops where he's got like everything he wants at his disposal i mean these are moments where i kind of fanboy out because i like i5 and so when you get to a situation where the character is able to trick himself out i'm like yeah and that's what i liked about Jax too I mean, granted he had that reset point at the end which i was kind of like yeah i get why they did it but i5's character the growth of that character especially by the end of the book which i cannot wait till we talk about that i just i, I really liked what they did with him with with metachlorines, with force philosophy. There was a lot more to this book than I ever anticipated midway through my read. I was really like, this can't get any better. This is just, this is just going to drag on and on and end. And I was so wrong. I was, I, and I was so happy to be wrong because of how it drug out in the middle. It does get better by the end of it. Um, ow, sorry, I just smacked my hand. Yeah, it does get better by the end of it. It does pick up, um, I will say with those cephalons and the whole, you know, way they look at time, it makes them basically fortune cookies or horoscopes, you know? Uh, choice is loss. Indecision is all loss. 
you want to maybe pin that down for me, man? Tell me something <laughs> that's actually specific, because what you just said means nothing. Uh, nothing whatsoever. Um, at least give me something clever and funny. Like, I was just playing The Last of Us, and there's a thing in the game where if you wait around at certain points, the, the kid that's with you, this 14-year-old, uh, will just start telling jokes. And one of them is, you know what's not right? Left. That has more meaning than <laughs> choice is loss, indecision is all loss. It's it's just very fortune cookie-esque. Um, well, he says, I will he say, says crux to Jax, and then he goes, he goes, uh... At crux, choice is, has, been, will, be, lost, indecision, has, is, will, be, will, lost, all lost. Like, what, what? The only thing that is more confusing than his predictions and the way he says it is the Cephalon's name. Aoloiloa. A-O-L-O-I-L-O-A. Nice. Um, anyway, though, uh, I will say, I mean, some of the other things that's, that stick out here. Yeah, the stuff on Mandalore was kind of dragon it was sort of like four or five conversations that could have been one or maybe two because of how many times Jax just leaves and comes back and leaves and comes back. It just kind of, you know, it, it drug it out and made it feel a little dull. But I will say I love the way they handled the introduction of going to Mandalore. It's at the beginning of Chapter 15. Now, this is really the first book to deal directly with Mandalore uh, since what we saw with the Clone Wars happened. Uh, in season five, there's a lot of stuff they weren't able to deal with or talk about. This book could. So it picks up having in season five, having had Darth Maul come in with Pre Vizsla, uh, wind up taking over Mandalore from the new Mandalorians. The Death Watch is in charge, the so-called Shadow Collective, they called it. Vizsla dying, Maul being in charge with uh, Almec brought back as a puppet prime minister until finally Maul is defeated. Uh, Maul and Savage are defeated. So now, here we are, shortly after Revenge of the Sith, about a year after, and we get, Mandalore was a culture divided. The wartime activities of a consortium of criminal elements known as the Shadow Collective had proved too much for the new Mandalorians to handle. Satine's government had fallen, and a violently dissenting group calling itself Death Watch had arisen to give the members of the Shadow Collective, largely Black Sun and Hut organizations, a titanic headache. After the initial paroxysm of hostilities had passed, a puppet prime minister had been installed, and things had quieted down. Still, the atmosphere on Mandalore was one of simmering uncertainty. It was peaceful enough on the surface, even with a strong Death Watch presence, but the dissolution of the Shadow Collective had left a power vacuum. Into this vacuum, Black Sun, personified by the Falene Vigo Prince Shizor, had oozed like malevolent slime. So we have a Mandalore that's essentially under Black Sun control in many respects, thanks to the events of the cartoon series. And I thought that was pretty cool, to finally give us a chance to see Mandalore and slowly see how things are going to eventually work their way back to that kind of old status quo that we know of for Mandalore throughout much of the rest of the EU. And they had a lot of good little things that they added in here. There was that. Um, there was the fact that Tesla, Inquisitor Tesla, the one who has sort of been a, a thorn in Jax's side and vice versa throughout the series, winds up being taken out, not by Jax, but is about to deliver a death blow to Jax, Safa, or Sacha, excuse me, the, the, the woman who is Force-sensitive, is carrying around the Sith lightsaber that he had hidden inside the potted plant, because Jax had made his own lightsaber again since the last time we saw him have to use the Sith one. She just whips it out and zzzz, kills Tesla. A Tesla goes out pretty much like a little punk, mostly. Um... We get a very cool instance where we have where we see the new Whiplash base, and it, it actually was very reminiscent to me of the new Total Recall, the new remake of Total Recall, which of course was 
based on We Can Dream It For You Wholesale back in uh, the writings of Philip K. Dick, um, where you get sort of this this maglev as your base. In their case, it was this old, you know, subway-type system. In this case, it's actually an, an old area of the maglev system of essentially Coruscant Subway, where, you know, things just don't usually go anymore, and they've got this train that they can move around at any point, and they use it and its individual cars as their base. I thought that was very cool. I don't think it's original to the story. I think we've seen it before in other sci-fi, but I, I was very cool. on that. I, I mean, the idea works, but the other side of me is like, really, you wouldn't notice like this whole area that's been cut off, and crime syndicates wouldn't have taken advantage of that long ago. I mean, I, I go back and forth because, yeah, Coruscant is a really big place, and this series especially has kind of gone out of their way to explain how big Coruscant really is because a lot of EU books kind of make it seem smaller than it is. But I don't know. I, I have a hard time with that. If, uh, if you can hide an entire train just by just driving it around and no one's ever going to notice that a train is where it's not supposed to be. But again, that's probably just because Coruscant is so much bigger than I'm perceiving. Well, my fear was that they were going to do something that was a little less creative and just do something like, well, they're in an old abandoned warehouse, which seems to be the way that it always works, right? There's always an old abandoned warehouse when a resistance group needs a base, and somehow the authorities <laughs> never notice it. Um, I will say, though, speaking of bases, one of the scenes that I actually remember very fondly from this, and it's one that – it's another one that you could say is somewhat drawn out in the way it plays out. It doesn't have much impact when it probably should, is um, Jack's – needs to know if Yiman has been brought back to Coruscant. They're jumping to all kinds of conclusions, like, well, because of of, of the value of, of Yiman as a prisoner, he must have been brought here, or he must have been brought here, or hey, there were some ships that went to Mandalore, so he must have been brought there. It's another of these uh, seek the sisters kind of moments where they're jumping to conclusions that turn out to be somewhat right or where they're needing to go, but it seems like there's a, a gap between point A and point B in their thoughts that's like a giant chasm. A little um, forced. But, yeah, very forced. Uh, but they wind up uh, with Jax impersonating an Imperial officer, using the force to kind of like dim down his presence, and he walks into an ISB, an Imperial Security Bureau base, um, that full of Inquisitors trying to see whether Vader is there, whether Yaman is there, and whether Vader has arrived or not, and that sort of thing. And he almost gets spotted by Vader in the process here. But that was a very tense kind of moment, a very sort of Metal Gear Solid or The Last of Us type of moment where it's all about stealth and you really are worried that the character is going to be discovered because he really is outmatched. And I don't know that in this book we really ever had a fear that Jax himself was going to wind up getting hurt or killed, at least not until the very, very end. But for some reason that moment, I think because this wasn't Han, Luke, Leia, Obi-Wan. This wasn't a character that we know has to survive for future stories. It at least gave us that sense of dread in that situation. It was one of the more tense scenes in the book. And I'm not sure if that's something that was just the way I perceived it or the way that they intended it to be. Because it winds up being a mission into the Imperial Security Bureau that doesn't really actually do much. All it does is prove that Yaman isn't there. But Mm -hmm. that scene to me is one of the more memorable ones of the book. Well, it, it kind of plays up on, you know, the beginning when they get ambushed, they don't know how Vader found him. And they're assuming it's because Jax touched the force. Uh, and so he's got that feeling all the way through. I mean, there's one moment where he uses the force and he reaches through that potted plant that Loranth got him to go and feel in towards Tesla. So he uses the potted plant's own living force signature to mask his own. And then he later does the same thing to Tesla's apprentice. 
And Tesla, when he feels the sensation, he thinks it's his apprentice. Uh, it, you know, and I, I thought that was slick the way they played that up. And you didn't realize till the very end that it wasn't Jax that had tipped them off. Yeah, Jax's force presence, once Vader was in the location due to the tip off, it did, you know, dial him in like Jax was able to dial into the uh, prison that was in the middle of the asteroid base. But it wasn't Jax that set Vader, you know, ooh, I feel him over in this sector, let's move kind of thing. It was, they were already in that sector and Vader was feeling for four signatures and, oh, I found you. And because of that, and Jax not knowing he was betrayed, all through the book, he's second guessing himself. And I think I, I, I have issue when characters second guess themselves to the point that Jax did. But by the time they got to the end, it worked out. I mean, when you're, when you stop and think about it, this book is, uh, we are looking at uh, 459, 460 pages. I mean, it is a long book. Uh, I don't think it needed to be that long, but it still, it worked being as long as it was. It got a little slow. It's one of those things where I think you could easily cut out 50 to 100 pages. Like it did not need to be as long to work. But there were moments where I was kind of like, I don't know about this book. But again, if you're reading it, you get to that point. I couldn't say enough. Go through to the end. You will you will be very much happier that you choked this one all the way through. Because that's how I felt at a moment in the middle. I was like, I don't know if I could finish this book. It's really getting that slow in the back and forth and back and forth. And like you said, Nathan, like, do we really have to go here? Those moments. But sprinkled through that are the character development moments you know i5 he gets his modular piece that allows him to take his his brain from one body to another they put him in a pit droid he's got a pit droid chassis he's got an r2 chassis he's got a hybrid i5 uh slash nemesis droid body which was pretty cool kind of punk rocker like uh, a lot of really cool things like that are happening for him um the sasha character the 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 ranger that you know we find out yeah she's got some force sensitivity involved uh, all this kind of stuff. We don't know if, if they're the ones that set him off, but Jax is definitely hesitant to go back to them because that was the last place they were before they were ambushed. So there's that aspect of cloak and dagger because Jax doesn't even know what's going on. So I don't know. Maybe it was my taste that felt like the middle part of the book slowed down. Maybe if you're into more of those cloak and dagger books, maybe that didn't slow down for you at all. I, I'm not sure. But for me, it did get a little slow. There were moments where I was like, I don't know if I'm going to enjoy this. But it definitely came back full force and came back hard. Uh, to talk about Whiplash real fast, one of the things about this series, and I'm going to talk about all four books, is I never really cared for the fact that Whiplash was kind of given this, this feel like it was the one that created the rebellion. This book does a really good job of explaining away why Whiplash had that feel and yet why Whiplash wasn't really mentioned later, why we don't hear about Bale uh, Bill Organa and Whiplash or, you know, Mon Mothma and Whiplash or Bill Iblis and Whiplash. And so I liked the way that it was subtle, but yet it was kind of mentioned. That was, that was a fun little bit. Yeah. This book, in that sense, it managed to fix what had sort of been uh, not really a continuity headache, but it caused people to kind of question, how does this fit in with everything else? Um, they did certainly turn Whiplash into something where the remnants of it could possibly be part of the rebellion. But, it itself is not the beginning of it, especially since we already have other resistance groups out there and that sort of thing. But as much as this one avoided the pitfalls continuity-wise of other books in this series, it didn't get the dates wrong for the prequels in relation to itself. It didn't get the dates of Reeves's other Star Wars books wrong like the other ones did. It didn't have a climax that relied entirely on something that was chronologically incorrect like Patterns of Force did. 
I will say though that in some of the interviews based on this, as they were talking about this book, um, she, she, that is Maya Catherine Bonhoff, one of the two authors here, was asked about the character of Nick Ross too. And I forget where the interview actually was. Um, but she was asked about the character of Nick Ross too because they left Nick nearly dead in Jedi Twilight, the first Coruscant Knights book. And he shows up as a main character in Luke Skywalker and the Shadows of Mendor a long time later. And it had been apparently their intention to kill off the character, only he shows up later, so he must have just been wounded or whatever. So they asked the question, so what about Nick Ross too and his appearance in Luke Skywalker and the Shadows of Mendor and all that kind of stuff? And even today, now that Shadows of Mendor has been out for quite a while, Bonhoff still sticks to the idea that, no, he died in our book. You know what? That's the kind of attitude toward continuity that constantly causes things to get screwed up. When there is something already existing, you don't just trample over it and decide what you want it to be. And when something else gets added onto the continuity of your tale, you live with it because that's just the way the Star Wars continuity, the expanded universe, works. Yep. And that along with the, chron the chronological issues they had in the previous three books, that left me with a little bit more of a, a bad taste in my mouth. This series in and of itself, Coruscant Nights with The Last Jedi, overall, leaves me with a bad taste in my mouth, which sucks, because I like the idea of sort of the gumshoe-type stories, the whodunit-type stories that we got with some of the first books in this series, and I like the way that this book plays out, although, yeah, the middle of it is a freaking slog. It should not have been as long as it was, um... It is a chore to get through about half of this book, the middle half. The first quarter, not so much. The last quarter, fun, action, butt-kicking. But in the middle, it's going to be work. Would I recommend this book? Sure. Would I recommend the entire series? If you can ignore the continuity issues and the chronological issues and just go with it, then yeah. You know, because there's a difference between not knowing that a continuity thing or a chronological thing is there, and writing out of ignorance and oops. You know, <laughs> it just happens. Maybe they didn't know about Shadows of Mindor. Uh, maybe Mike Hathabonov somehow still doesn't know after being told over and over again about him, Nick Ross, who living, you know, in Shadows of Mindor. Um, there's one thing of going out of ignorance when you should have done the research. There's a, quite another... When you have a situation like even Peel being uh, Jax's master, which winds up being tossed out the window because he can't die in the course of Coruscant Nights when he already died in the Clone Wars series. That's something out of their control um, because that's something that Lucas and Filoni and them come in and do way after the fact that they just kind of have to live with. But it's something else entirely uh, when you just don't do the math right. You don't keep track of your own story and when it takes place in relation to something as – not even something as – uh, as obvious, or what should have been obvious, as Reeves' own other books, but the films. Even if you've not researched anything else, you should know when your books take place in relation to the Star Wars movies. Those are the dates that everybody writing for Star Wars should know, and if not, they shouldn't be writing for Star Wars. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's what could have been a really, really good series with a few meh, moments, slog moments here and there, to me will always be, including this book, will always be colored by the writer's mistakes and their attitude, it seems, toward the continuity and chronology outside of it. Too many errors, too much 
either willful ignorance or denial of reality on behalf of, of Bonhoeff when it comes to Ross to, 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 to make me highly recommend the series. But mm. like I said, it, it's probably kind of a second tier recommendation, at least as far as Last of the Jedi goes. Um, the rest of the series, you know, hey, if you can ignore the continuity stuff and just get into the story, then the first three books are decent stories. Just don't try to understand the Boda thing at the end of Patterns of Force because it won't make any damn sense because they screwed <laughs> up the dates. Well, to stick with where you're going with that, I mean, if I were to recommend it as a series, I would only recommend this book. If I was to say you wanted to read this series, what I would suggest is go out, get Darth Maul Shadowhunter. Okay, then from there, get the Jedi Healer duology. Uh, and then from there, read these. I, I think if you go with I-5, you know, with follow I-5 story, I think that would be the better series than just grabbing the last of the... or. Uh, the Coruscant Knights and The Last Jedi and reading those four books. I think if you go back for I-5's character, follow it from there all the way to the end of this, that is a series I think you would get more enjoyment out of if you than if you were to just go with The, the Coruscant Knights and The Last Jedi. Um, you know, because for me, a, a lot of the, the favorite moments for me were I-5. Uh, you know, I-5 was Jax's dad's droid. So there are moments like in Chapter 26... Where, uh, you know, they're getting all mad at, at I-5, or not I-5, they're mad at Jax, Den and I-5 are. And, uh, let's see, uh, Dex swallowed an inappropriate chuckle when Jax observed, this must be what it feels like to have a father. Sometimes you need to have one, the droid responded. What I need, Jax ground out, is a Jedi Master, but I don't have that. What I need is Lorenz, but I don't have her either. What I need is to not have to put Yemen in harm's way. But I did. What I need is the training and the experience to go head to head with Vader. But I lacked that as well. The last time I faced him, I had help. A lot of it. And even with all that help, it took Vader o overreaching and Rimmon throwing his life away to even get us out of their life. Right now, I've got Zizir and his resources, and I'm going to use those. This is a mistake, Jax. I-5 told him. For a Jedi Knight to be in the service of a black son, Vigo. I don't like it either, but it's what we've got. It, it, these are the moments that the mid part of the book we say drag out. I mean, I, I really, I, I feel like from a reader's point of view, it's drug out. But I think if you're in a universe, like I think these moments are necessary for Jax's character to finally pull his head out at the end. Um, you know, I-5's character and his relationship with Jax, just, it just got better and better. I mean, toward the end when Vader finally shows up and Jax is pulling all the stops out and they're doing all the craziness and you're just like, how is this going to work? Are they going to be able to get in and out? You know, uh, they get to the point where they're in the middle of this fight. Vader, as at this point, Jax actually calls him out as Anakin, which is just so awesome when that moment happens. Because he's like, all right, Anakin. And Vader's like, so be it, Jax. And he's just like, oh, it is on the grudge match of all grudge matches. And in the middle of it all, there was a sudden flash of light. And exploding uh, along the hole of a starfighter. And Vader stops and he looks. He goes, is this another of your projections? I won't be fooled by it. The dark voice trailed off as the Dark Lord must have sensed what Jax did. A new presence. The new presence had a force signature of its own. Weak but steady. The glow intensified and Jax could see a figure at its heart. A humanoid figure. Had Sacha, run! It was a familiar voice. But he hesitated to obey. He knew what he had to do. He had to destroy the starfighter. Himself and Vader with him. Run! A volley of blaster fire streamed out of the radiance between the two ships, targeting Vader. The Dark Lord force leapt from the station deck in an arc that took him over Jax's head. He touched down in a swirl of black robes and rolled beneath the airspace. 
The rapid blaster fire followed him, sweeping the length of the vessel and melting its port landing struts. The Jedi ship slagged towards the deck, then dropped its bow with a metallic groan. Jax ran. He ran toward the light and found at its center, not Sasha, but a stranger. A man. No, not a man, he realized as his eyes and force sense took in the detail of the face and body. It was a droid. A human replicant droid. It could only be I-5. His android arm encumbered with the nemesis blaster rifle. Jack stopped beside the droid. Keep moving, I-5 said, his human voice showing grim determination. I am not losing you the way I lost your father. That moment was so powerful when I read it. I just, I-5 had come alive, not just on the page, but in the force. And they, they continue that later where they, I mean, they even discuss the fact that droids don't have metachlorines and metachlorines are supposed to be the active ingredient and the person feeling the force and what that means and, and why he has it. And that for me was one of the best moments of the book because I have always since, since Empire Strikes Back and Yoda does the whole in the rock, in the ship, in you, the forces. It's like, how can the force be in a rock? How can it be in the ship? All these things the unifying force in the new Jedi order, all these kind of these concepts are always coming together for EU fans. And that, that to me, when I five has force sensitivity, that was just like, Holy cow, that moment. And, and the fact of, of, you know, Jack's being the, the son figure to I five and I five taking on Lauren's, you know, Jack's dad's role. And I'm not going to lose you. Like I lost your father. The, the Sith holocron, because, you know, if you've been following from Darth Maul, Darth Maul kills Jax's dad to get that Sith holocron that then goes to Palpatine that they end up getting back in, in the later books. It just, oh, man, the way it's all connected in that regard, you know, granted, these books aren't all part of a bigger series, but I, as an EU fan, see them that way. And if you go from that Darth Maul into Jedi Healer, into those books to this book, the payoff is great. Yeah, in that sense, great payoff. Um we get to, there's sort of that sense that Laren's spirit is still helping them from the Force. We get the great culmination of I-5 with a lot of questions unanswered, but the whole idea that he's Force-sensitive. What really felt to me like in this book it didn't provide true fulfillment is I never really got from anything in any of these books, just why is it that Vader is so obsessed with Jax as being the one to take down? The closest we ever get to that is sort of a sense that well, one, he wants to wipe out the Jedi, and he's very single-minded about it, as we see in other stories. Um, but also the idea that Jax is kind of like what Anakin could have been if he had made better choices. But beyond that, there's really very little to ever justify this whole idea of Vader sees Jax as an, an ultimate rival he must take down. Not really. I mean, he wants the Pyronium back which winds up getting blown all the heck whenever he uses it to blow up his starfighter and, and, and cover their escape and everything and try to kill Vader, but of course that won't work. But it just kind of, it's something that was never really built upon. It always just was kind of assumed. They took for granted in these books that Vader would see Jax as this man he must take down, that those two are the ones on a collision course because it's Jax and it's Anakin. And it just never really felt like that ever truly became fulfilled. Yeah, they clashed with each other. They had a, a knockdown drag out battle. But on an emotional standpoint, a characterization standpoint, on the the foundational level, that never seemed like it truly came together. It's uh, it's like what they used to say about the Treaty of Versailles, right? It's a peace built on quicksand. Well, this was a rivalry built on quicksand. 
we sort of got it, but further along we went, the more we were expecting something else to help justify this rivalry and give us something more than just, well, he's what Anakin could have been, etc., etc. It never really came together. And in that sense, that element of the story kind of sinks down into the, the quagmire. See, I always saw it like this is this is the founding of their nemesis from Vader's point of view. You know, uh, I almost see it more like Vader, his obsession with Jax is more, you know, this guy is a chump. You know, they were the same age, but Anakin was so much more of a Jedi. I mean, his training, he he becomes, a, you know, granted Palpatine kicked it into motion, but he becomes a master. He gets knighted first. Technically, Jax is still a Padawan at this point. And they point that out from Jax's point of view quite a bit. So I would think from Vader's standpoint, he's like, I have killed, you know, venerated Jedi masters. What in the heck is Jax Pavan still alive for? This guy should be a flick of my wrist. Like that kind of irritation. Like, you know, he's just an annoying fly that the grand scheme of things, he really should have been taken out long ago, but he has managed to just luck out, you know, and that's where Vader's getting angry is the the luck of Jax Pavan. And though by the end of this book, He's like, whoa, you know, this kid's got some skills that I had not anticipated. And now you've got a full on rivalry. But that rivalry won't really have as much impact now that Jax has lost all those really cool powers. So Jax is probably going to get diced up the next encounter. But yeah, it, it leaves a lot to assume. I mean, because that was where I went. I just assumed that it wasn't so much that Vader wanted to kill him because he thought that he was his, his rival and his nemesis, but more that. You know, that he saw he was such a weakling that there really should be no reason for him to be alive. How in the heck did he manage to avoid all the stormtroopers? This guy is a chump. He should not be living. He's on borrowed time. And here I thought it was just that when the, they first met each other after he'd become more machine than man, old Jax was like, oh, really? Sorry, I had to take my Simba court there. He just sit back and said, hey, uh, you asthmatic now? Uh, maybe you need an inhaler. <laughs> Speaking uh, as someone who has asthma, it's it's a pain in the butt. And, and maybe Vader just didn't like that uh, being mocked. I don't know. It just, again, it's, that's what I said. It's a second tier kind of book. Is it a good read? By the time you get to the end, yes, it is what I recommended over a lot of the other stuff that's been re released recently. No, but that is not to say that it is a bad book. There are plenty of bad Star Wars books out there. This is not a bad one. Uh, if I had to give it a grade, I would give it a B. B minus, maybe. Um, it's above average by the time you get to the end of it, but it's not a, you know, knocking it out of the park by any means because of just uh, certain elements of it and the fact that it drags a little bit. Um, so, I think that should just about wrap us up for this episode, right, Mark? We are just about there. There are just uh, quick two little things I want to talk about. You know, we mentioned uh, the hodgepodge armor that uh, I-5 gets in his nemesis I-5 unit. Uh, I found the page. To say I-5 looked peculiar and menacing would be an understatement of the case. He was a gleaming nightmare. One-third protocol droid, one-third nemesis assassin, and one-third who knew what. One arm seemed almost normal. It wasn't. And the other, in pristine white, looked like a rocket launcher which was not too far from the truth. One leg was silver, one was gold. Both were augmented with anti-gravity repulsors. The long helmet-like cowling that formed the back of his head was encrusted with short, conical spikes. He could kill someone simply by falling backwards on them. Diplomacy with an evil twist. And I love how uh, Sasha calls him, we look so black sunny. <laughs> just like That was just a great description because all through this, you've been hearing how this, this nemesis... 
I-5 body has been growing and growing and getting more lethal to the point where even Den realizes that I-5 has made it where he can do all the modifications on himself and Den is pretty much worthless at this point to him that there's really no need for Den to be around while he's doing the modifications. I, I just, I love that continuing uh, growth of the character. And then the other one was uh, the, you know, where I was talking about the uh, metachlorines. I found that thought as well. He goes, uh, it's accepted dogma by everyone who knows about the force. Jack said quietly, almost as if speaking to himself, that the force is manifested through living things by metachlorines. The higher the cell count of metachlorines, the stronger the connection to the force. And yet, I-5 said, right, your neural processor has no organic components, or at least it shouldn't have them. Neither did your original I-5YQ chassis or those in interim bodies you used. This human replica droid body comes the closest, but it's still just synth flesh and nanomolecular uh, electronics. You have no metachlorines, I-5. This is true. But the Force lives within you. How do you account for this? It would appear, said I-5, that the Force works in mysterious ways. Or at least that my neuroprocessor does. And I, I just, I love that. I mean, they leave it open to mystery. And yet, for you know, an EU fan as my as myself who has been dabbling in force philosophy for years, they give us one more piece of the puzzle. Uh, you know, I, I truly believe that when it comes to things like droids, rocks, things that do not live and do not have metachlorines, that they are just as connected to the force through the unifying force. Uh, you know, take the Yuuzhan Vong when they get the force stripped from them, they don't really get the force stripped from them. They really get their connection to the living force stripped to them. They're still in the force. The Jedi, even though they can't feel the stuff, somehow always manage to deflect the thud bugs at them. Why? Because the unifying force still feels the air being pushed, and that object is still there. Uh, Yosemari, they don't exist in the in the living force because there's a bubble that pushes it out. They're still there. They're still attached to the force. Unifying force. So, you know, these little things have come to that in my head of, you know, you can have things that exist outside the force, but are still attached to the force. Maybe that's all Viger and there is no dark side. I don't know. But I love when we get these little tiny pieces. Uh, this book did a really good job of bringing that. Once we got into that Sith holocron, which, you know, again, from Darth Maul Shadowhunter on, I've been waiting to see what was inside that. And that was just awesome. The way that he absorbed that information and stuff. I really enjoyed the nine hells out of the end of this book. Um you know, I have a hard time saying what I recommend it, you know, as Nathan said, I would not recommend it by itself, but I would 100 percent recommend it if you were to read all the other books, uh, you know, the Shadow Hunter, the, the Jedi Healers into Coruscant Knights. And then this book, I think this book is a very good read if you have done that. Uh, if you haven't done that, I don't think you're going to get as much out of it. And I would understand if you did not enjoy the book. Um, but that that's my recommendation. Nathan, like I said. Tier 2, give it a B. If you read the other three books, I would go ahead and read this one. It is probably the best of the four, and it is the end cap that finally wraps up the story that began oh so long ago in Jedi Twilight. Now, one last thing before we wrap up. I did want to comment, though, the Parodium was lost in space. So uh, the great thing about this is it absorbs energy. So even though the ship around it exploded, all it did was got stronger. So there is a rock out there supercharged with energy just floating in the voids of space. I mean, granted, that could be considered an open plot thread or it just could be a really cool little thing. I like to think of it as an open plot thread that maybe somebody somewhere out there looking for the Dagger of Mortis is going to stumble across this. I don't know, but I thought it was cool. Discovered in a galaxy far, far away by a young man named David when facing Goliath. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh... <laughs> 
Well, that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on iTunes, which we encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms. Or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It is one of the best ways to interact with us. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or even other ones, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can also email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we want to mention to you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. And if you actually like it enough to sign up, you help us grow as a show. You can explore more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate. Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the screen or just adding a digital library like Nathan and me think about doing off and on, Audible just might be right for you. And if you're out there looking for unusual sci-fi collectibles and otherwise, or if you happen to have someone out there who is interested in, of all things, Barbie stuff still in the packages, uh, we do still have our Amazon store up right now that Jody, my wife, and I run. It is uh, Amazon.com slash shops slash Lil Joe Collectibles. It's L-I-L-J-O Collectibles, all run together as one word. And you can also keep up, if you're really interested in the chronology and continuity aspects of Star Wars, you can keep up with us through our Star Wars Beyond the Films Facebook page, but there is also a Facebook page specifically for my Star Wars Timeline Gold, which will have a new edition coming out here around the end of July. You can find that at facebook.com slash SWTimelineGold. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And the newly married Nate. Saying thanks for listening and may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that releasing a sequel to this four years later might possibly have convinced them to do an Imperial Commando 2 at some point. <gasps> I like the odds of that. Or that we're gonna see more of Jack Spavon and I 5 later in another book. Or that somebody just bumps into the Peronium while flying through the area and blows the heck up! <laughs> To say I-5 looked peculiar. Peculiar. Say it for me, Nathan. Peculiar. Ah, thank you. To say I-5 looked peculiar. That I, I want to say liar. If you've read the other three books, you ought to read this one. It's probably the best of the four. Did I say the other two? Let's get this droid going. You ready, buddy? That was a good one, I should have went with that. No, I don't like it. <laughs>